The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah 1-3 Hi, this is Pastor Jason from Christian Life Church in Waverly, New York. Welcome to Master's Crib, a weekly podcast where we interview pastors and leaders about the biblical teaching of authority. This program is designed to go alongside a personal Bible study aimed towards spiritual growth, biblical understanding, and a Christian worldview. Thanks for tuning in. Always searching, never finding Growing colder every mile Life a thread that keeps unwinding On this unforgiving Today on episode 35, we have Seth Davey, husband, father of two, singer, songwriter, artist, and author. Seth, welcome to Master's Crib. Thanks so much, Jason, for having me. So let's uh, just spend a couple minutes talking about you. So you have uh, a wide array of things you've been involved in. I understand um, you come from a line of pastors, um, and you've kind of taken a different turn with the way that you do ministry. So uh, what do you have your hands involved in now? Uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Jason. Um, my father has a radio broadcast ministry. He's a He started a church. I'm 34 now, so he started a church here in the Raleigh area when I was seven months old. I have a twin brother. He's a pastor in Charlotte, started a church, life church in Charlotte, uh, not so long ago. And, um, and so I've been working with, for my father for quite a long time now. Um, it started out kind of as the, you know, the typical Starbucks job for guys in bands who just need to have, uh, who need to have a job that allows them to work, but also that's lenient when it comes to traveling and things like that. So that was been a nice part of working for my father. Um, but I do audio production. I can kind of use the, the a little bit of the musical uh, ear, as my dad likes to call it, that God's given me to be able to do the producing. I don't really necessarily have a great background in that. I'm not very tech savvy either, but I can do that, I guess, uh, sufficiently. Not efficiently, but sufficiently. Um, but recently, uh, within the last year, uh, they've been um, they put out a magazine and sending that to to. To, to different listeners and supporters. And I've been able just to write devotionals for um, every day on um, devotionals for the magazine. I was able to spend probably seven months going through the book of John, the book of Mark, and especially focusing on the uh, words of, of our Lord, uh, which was just, which was great for me because I, I can be sometimes sadly, even as a husband, as a father, and I, I can, I can not always be as faithful as I should be um, in daily readings. And, and, and God knows that. I mean, he, he gives me, he places me in context like this when I was leading music at church not so long ago that causes me to really just be able to sit and reflect. Mm. Um, and, and, and the impressions I've been able just to get from just sitting and reflecting on just a few lines, a few lines of the red letters, a few lines of text is, has just been um, really edifying for me. And it's been wonderful to see how the Lord in, in little ways here and there is using that to, to, to encourage other people as well. That's um, awesome. Yeah. So when did you get involved in music as a ministry? You know, that's a great question, Jason. Um, to one of the one of the, the, the members of Atlas named John, 
John and I, back in high school, we started a band together. I, I had kind of gone away from piano at the time. I was just singing, not singing very well. I still don't, but I was even worse then. So you wouldn't want to, you, know, you would not have wanted to hear that band. But but John, I loved. I loved going to his house. That kind of became our our life. Didn't really have much of a social life. I, he, he played guitar. I wrote lyrics, and we put them together, and and voila. Um, went to school. Uh, went to a small Christian university in Pennsylvania. Played soccer there. Soccer was a, a big love as well. Um, and, and I thought at the time that God might be calling me into uh, into youth pastoral ministry, possibly the pastorate. I just was open. To, to whatever vocation he wanted for me um, in terms of ministry. I definitely felt a calling to, to be serving him. Um, and we, we all serve him. And so, but, but just a, a specific sense that when I was a junior in high school, I just felt the Lord impressing on me to be doing something vocationally in, in ministry. Um, and, and, when, and when I say, again, when I say ministry, you can be ministering as a, as a cobbler or, or working at Starbucks, but, but something that, that used the, the gifts of writing and, and teaching in some way, I felt that that's what God had for me. Um, so I was in some different bands in, in college, but that was a little bit peripheral. Nothing was ever kind of getting the momentum it needed. And I was okay with that until my, my junior year, I had a friend named Mark and he lived next door to me in our suite. And I had this little cheap keyboard. Uh, funny enough, I bought it from Radio Shack. It's a Christmas present. I don't know why or where they had a keyboard in Radio Shack. It had weighted keys. If you, if anyone listening is a pianist, you'll know the importance of playing a keyboard with weighted keys. Yeah. Um, so I bought, yeah. So I bought that. I had that in my room, and I just would pull it out and do some writing, uh, play play music every day. And and Mark would just come often, just stand in the doorway and listen. And I'm not saying this falsely, humbly. I mean, truly, I don't. I don't reflect back on that time. I don't think there's any songs that came out at the time that I even today consider to be good. So nothing I was writing or playing was, was, was really worth, uh, was worth anything. But, um, but Mark seemed to appreciate it. He'd stand there and listen. And one day he pulled me aside, um, kind of an odd moment. He said, Seth, I want to talk to you. So we sat down. Um, and he just said, he said, what, what, again, I was a junior at the time in college. He said, um, what do you want to do after college? Uh, what, what's your plan? And I didn't, really, I didn't really think too hard about it. I just, I just, uh, I think the Lord's calling me into to ministry, uh, to, into youth pastoral ministry, maybe. He said, be quiet. So I said, what? He said, every day I come and, and you're writing music. You're, you're playing songs. You're writing songs. This is who you are. This is what you love. Uh, so why are you not pursuing that? And long story short, Jason, I know you've already kind of heard this. We've gotten to talk, um, just the two of us. But, uh, but God really used that to help me to see that for me, I would have been the ninth generation pastor in my family. And I hear that growing up. People at, at the church would say, that's going to be you one day up there, you know, on, on stage. And and I got bitter for a while until the Lord really got a hold of my heart in high school. But I didn't realize that there was kind of this, I think there was really a lingering sense subconsciously in me of, I, I have to do this. I really have to pursue this. Mm-hmm. This is really the one way that I can serve God. And I remember going back from that conversation with Mark and sitting in a chair and just feeling the impression of the Lord that, that that he was calling me into ministry. He was calling me even into pastoral work. But it was going to be more on the fringes, more on the margins, more in the sense of to those kind of in and out of the church and not not behind a podium per se or um, not writing sermons per se, but, but, but in a different kind of context, which later I'd look back on. I was living in Wales and playing in, in bands and being in bars and places like that. I'd look back and say, aha, that... 
the, the, that was kind of the beginning seeds, that mustard seeds, so to speak, of mm. of uh, of a little bit of a vocation that God was going to continue to to grow and grow from that point on. Well, that's awesome. So now you're uh, you're into writing books, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, by the way, let me just apologize. I have a screaming baby downstairs, so if you guys hear anything coming through. <laughs> I'm not doing anything to the baby. She's, she's well fed. So <laughs> she's just not a happy camper right now for some reason. Um, but anyway, so yeah, yeah. So books, that, that's another thing. Um, it's kind of one of those side things and, but, uh, but I, I, I've, I love art. I'm not a very good painter. I'm not a, a great um, artist myself, but I love collaborating with, with great watercolor painters and painters of all types. And so I've been able to, to write and publish some different fables, um, some some funny stories. Uh, I don't know if, if if you've heard of the author G.K. Chesterton. Um, oh, yeah, he was a yeah, he was a he was a clever. He was way too clever for his own good. So you, you <laughs> have to kind of take him. Yeah, you got to take him in doses. Um, but um, but I love this one quote. He said, "Okay, he could be deeply serious and deeply edifying, and then just just downright uh, just whimsical and silly." He said one time, "Poets have been mysteriously silent on the subject of cheese." And so I wrote, so I wrote a cheesy book. I just wrote a book to try to explain why poets, the, the mystery behind uh, why they have been. And it's funny. I was at this pastor's conference selling some of my books. Cause I have some, I've got one. I just painted um, myself on the life of Christ. When I turned 33, I published that one. And so I have some very, very serious tone books. And then, you know, I've got a cheesy book. And so this lady comes up to me at um, a pastor's conference and some of you out there are probably who listen are probably thinking the same thing and, and you're right to think this but she picked up the book of cheesy book and she says is this just a completely worthless book <laughs> <laughs> and i was like well if cheese is a completely worthless thing and and, and humor is then yes it's it, there's there's yeah, don't waste your time with that one anyway um but i, I like to do that it, it's it's allowed me to be able to even go to schools second grade classrooms third grade classrooms to go in and, and just just be with kids. There's really no pretense with kids. We also work with special needs, my wife and I, and we love that as well. There's just not any pretense in those places. And I feel like being in a band for so long and even in just so many, so many different variations of ministries, as you know, Jason, as all of you know who are listening, there's just we just have a lot of pretense. We just we just put on a lot of airs. And it's refreshing to be around um, people who can remind me to to um to to come as a child uh to to come to christ with simple faith um with an honest faith as well um and uh yeah that, that isn't just i'm using the word too much now but that just that that that, that doesn't just get pretentious wow. um let's even say pharisaical but moving on from that yeah no that's awesome so uh when all the songwriting's done when all the books have been written your 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 painting equipment has been set aside for the day, and you're you're finally going to bed. What is your hope and your prayer that was accomplished that day? This is this has really become important the last few years, especially since leaving Atlas. Uh, it's helped me a lot with depression and anxiety um, from the Lord. Is is the concept of the miracles um, in the mundane mm. or? this idea of the, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. Uh, we, we got to, during the COVID thing, I'm sure many of you did as well. I never planted trees before. It's one of those things I just kind of, 
maybe a phobia, if you will, of just, and I was able to go out and, you know, get my hands in the dirt and, and play with the soil and plant these trees. And, and then I was able to go through the parables of Jesus with our five-year-old son on Sundays. It was amazing because one of our, one of our trees began to die and another tree that was next to it began to, to, to blossom. Mm. And as we're, re- as we're reading Jesus, you know, talking about seeds and about trees, a sower goes out to, to sow seeds. And, and one of the parables um, is, you know, and, and then he sows them. And then I'm, I'm adding this emphasis, but he kind of goes away and forgets all about it. He goes and he, he goes to sleep or he goes about his life. He goes about his business and he kind of forgets. But, but while his eyes are turned away, there's all of this life that's happening underneath the ground, mm. all of the spreading and growing that's, that's going on. And he only recognizes it, the sower, when he begins to see fruit on the tree. Aha, uh-huh, there's fruit. And he goes out and he grabs the fruit and, you know, and he reaps the benefits of that. And I, and I looked at our backyard with my son. All the birds ate our seeds. It just was a bunch of mud. It was a bunch of mud. We were having weeds growing. Some grass was beginning to sprout. But if we looked at our uncultivated backyard, it just looked like a lot of mud, a lot of, you know, puddles of water and, and weeds and some grass. And on the surface, it's kind of like, you know, there's nothing going on there. It's just, it's just a bunch of dirt and mud and a bunch of gross stuff. But, but there, were, there was all of this budding from this Bermuda grass and others that were beginning to spread that now a year later have, have you know, have begun to rise from the surface. And I just think about that's been the thing that I'm trying to reflect on, Jason, on a daily basis, just here in the, in the mundane, today was just a rainy, dreary day inside, not much light in the house, in front of a computer for most of the day, had a headache, just one of those days where you kind of just feel like, look, I'm, this day's a wash, let's move on. I didn't really feel very, like I was very efficient at work. I, I didn't respond too patiently to my son. You know, it's just, it's just one of those days. But, but the reality that, like God says to Israel, you know, I'm doing a new thing in your midst can you perceive it and this thought that's occurring to me that's one of the fables i wrote called the foxhole is about this the sense that it's a great miracle when god does something entirely new when he when he, he speaks something new into existence but there's almost a even a, a, a more of a weightiness uh, even a greater gravity to the, mm. the miracle that happens from the old you, you know as david says to these old gates rise up O gates and sing as if he's pointing to this pile of rubble, think of Nehemiah or something, pointing to this pile of rubble and saying, God is going to raise up a song even from this, this which has been forsaken, this which lies in desolation. And, and, and not that my life is a desolate life, but I think about when days feel desolate, God is still working on, on this day. He's working in these little moments. And, and I don't want to miss that. And I miss it all the time, Jason, but I want to, I want to stand as if I'm looking through my window, looking at my at my backyard and not just seeing all the dirt and all the mud and all the weeds and, and, and you know, wow, 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 and, and woe is me. I want to see those little buds, just a little bit of Bermuda, that little, that, that new little sprout on the tree that's living. And I want to recognize this is, this is a miracle. This is the work of God that's happening. That's growing slowly right in my very midst. Uh, one last thing, Jason, I'm sorry, just kind of this idea of like grace in the crevices of common life, where like Solomon looks down, he says, consider the ant, you know, you lazy person. But just sometimes you just sit there and I look down at the little frog, I'm being too poetic, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a naturalist in this sense, but in the sense that just everywhere in every crevice of this world 
um, is telling us something, is declaring the glory of God, as David likes to say. And my goodness, how often I miss that. Wow. Um, yeah. Well, that is that is just wonderful. Let's continue yeah. and, and tear into God's word together. We're going to look at Matthew 6, 19 through 24. And I just like to read that. It says, uh, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp, excuse me, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Seth, according to this passage, Jesus draws some pretty distinct lines. Treasures here, treasures in heaven, two masters. Why does he make these distinctions? Yeah, so the thing that strikes me in that is is two things. One is how broad, how kind of um, universally applicable the first part of that is, the treasures in heaven versus treasures on earth, but then how specific he gets when it comes to money. There's an aspect to the life of Christ, to when I read the gospel accounts, that's deeply convicting and I'll say also confusing. And here's what I mean. Jesus was the quintessential nomadic person. He ha- he did not have he, uh, foxes have holes, but the son of man does not have a place to lay his head. We think of him in, in sandals. He was given a cloak or he was given a garment that lots were cast for it. So when you look at this, this perfect man, this God, man, this perfect individual, there's a sense in which when Jesus cuts to the heart of the rich young ruler who comes and says, I want to follow you, Lord. He says, okay, go sell all you have and give to the poor. And the man walks away sorrowingly. So when Jesus says, on the one hand, store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. I just talked about this with my son. We went through this a couple of weeks ago. And, and the idea of what is it that we treasure? What is precious to us in our hearts? And and, and is God, is Christ our all? Do we treasure God? Are we like Joshua, who the scriptures tell us he would sit outside, I believe, the tabernacle, and he would watch that that, that smoke rise up or the Shekinah glory. He would long to be able to to go inside like Moses before him. He wanted to, to go up Sinai. He wanted to be in the presence of God. Whereas the thunder and the lightnings and all of that was terrifying everyone else who was on the outside, who would say, no, Moses, no, you, you go in the presence of God for us. Well, we're happy to stay behind. Moses wanted to be there. He yearned. David, in his early years, he, he said he meditated on the words of God day and night on his law. It was like tasting morsels. He wanted to be in the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And so I see that when Jesus says, store yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. Well, well, we are in Christ. Our lives are hid with Christ on high, as the yeah. as the hymn writer says. And so when I realize, like the Apostle Paul, my contentment is not found in my experiences or in my circumstances or how much money I have in the bank. And when I can learn to be content in whatever state I'm in, whether poor or rich or whether sick or 
or healthy. And we all struggle with that. But th there's a truism. There's, there's an axiom there that we see and we recognize this is the way to live, to have the, the quiet spirit, the contentedness of heart, like Augustine says, our, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless mm. until we rest in him. Jason, and you and I know, and all you listening, we know those moments where we're not, where we're not restless, where we're truly finding our rest in Christ. And, and I think I find it often, I've, I've only traveled a little bit to a small poverty stricken island in Costa Rica and, 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 and parts of Wales, but I've heard from missionaries over and over again that usually, literally, in, in a tangible, physical way, the poorest of people, the poorest of Christians tend to be the happiest or the most joyful. So there is something there in that. So I see on the one hand this very broad stroke thing that Jesus is saying that's so important because it cuts to the heart. Just like when he says to the Pharisees, he has so many ways of saying it. You know, you, you think you're good because you're not murdering and committing adultery but i say to you that if you lust after a woman if you're mm. angry with your brother then you've murdered so he always cuts to the heart just as the rich young ruler just as the young man who wanted to bury his uh, i think his his father or, or, or and jesus says, let the dead bury their dead he cuts to the heart in capernaum the people come because they just want more food they just want mm. and they miss the miracle and jesus cuts to their heart by using the analogy of bread there's a sense where Jesus continues. He sees the hearts of people. The scripture tells us clearly he perceives what is in the hearts of those who are speaking to them. And he cuts directly to the heart. And so I see that. What is my heart? Like David prays before the Lord, search me and know me, O God. Try me. See if there's any contentious way in me. Reveal that to me so that you can... So you can you know, rip that from me and I can, like a scalpel from a surgeon, take that cancer out of me so I can walk in, in purity. Purity of heart is to will one thing, as Kierkegaard wrote. And I think that's really important. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So treasuring, the treasure has something, has everything to do with our heart and what we treasure. So the thing that gets confusing, I don't mean confusing in a way that like, oh, I don't, I don't trust that, is the thing that gets convicting more than that is when it says you can't serve God and money because of the fact for me, I'm not an ascetic person. I, I mean, I don't have social media. I don't have a phone. You know, it's, I, I'm, I'm not a wealthy person, especially not the standards of people living around me. But there is a sense I look at Christ and he does make the claim. Some have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And I look in the early church at people like St. Anthony, who kind of just abandoned all the wealth of his society and went and lived in the wilderness by himself and in this little shanty that was left over. And you see sometimes these kind of ascetic people who would, even the apostles who, who lived by the grace and mercy of others and really didn't have two cloaks. There were parts of the early church, Jason, you know this, uh, I mean, whole sections, even towns who believed that that was for them, that to be a Christian meant to not own, you know, uh, two pairs of clothes. Mm. Uh, and, 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 and so I, I have a hard time myself before the Lord kind of reconciling just the wealth that I live around, even if I'm not wealthy in my own society. I mean, we're so wealthy mm. as Americans compared to so many other Americans, but other people in the world that when I see the life of Christ and I see him many times pointing to money, I mean, directly at money, calling it out in people, it's always a conviction to me because I think, Lord, I, I know that I'm an idolater with money in some way. When I read that, there's two sides. There's, there's much more than two sides. I haven't figured it all out, but 
there's at least two things. One is this, just this deep, I mean, heart wrenching, just cutting to the heart truth of what do we cherish? What is it I'm living for? Mm. The other thing is, oh, and by the way, I mean, look at the life of Christ. Be really careful with money because the love of money is the root of many evils. And there is something specifically, specifically about money that evidently before the Lord is leads to a, to a great many idolatries that frankly I may be unaware of in my own life right now. So Christ demands in that passage complete and total exclusivity. Yeah. He's, he's literally drawing the distinction there. So just drawing that up into some, some cultural implications, I, I think of, uh, of your song, 30 Years and Counting, and okay. uh, you say... Oh God, it's still confounding. The grace is still abounding. For 30 years and counting, you've been by my side. So till I take my last breath and run with last laughter past death, may all the days I have left be pleasing in your sight. Oh God, it's still confounding. The grace is still abounding. For 30 years and counting, you've been by my side. Take my last breath and run with laughter past death. May all the days I have left be pleasing in your sight. So there's a clear emphasis here on our days or what remains of our days being pleasing to God. Seth, why is that important? Just, I, I guess maybe simply put, God is the, the author of, of, of life. And I, I try, Jason, I know you do as well. I, I've had, I have atheist friends. I try to be gracious and understand, to understand where they're coming from, to, to stand on a mountain and to look out at a sunset, you know, just over the landscape of mountains and say, look at the artistry of God. Look at the beauty of what God has made. Like David, just look at the, it's, it's, it's singing, it's pouring out praise. And my atheist friend can say, no, 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 that's, that's all. Look at the beauty of, of chance. And look how life is springing up out of nothing all over the place. It just, it's, he finds beauty in the notion of chance and necessity. And, and, and I, I want to understand what he sees, but at the same time, Jason, I can't because, because as the scripture says, by his light, do I see light? Mm. And, and to be honest, I, I just, you know, he is the author of all of life. And if he's the author of, of all of life, he's the author of my life. And if I'm still here having this conversation with you, Jason, at 34, then I have purpose. Mm. I may not be able to discern all of what my purpose is today, certainly I can. I probably only scratch the surface, just like looking outside of the uncultivated backyard. And there's only a couple little blossoms that I can actually perceive because most of it is imperceptible to me at this moment. Mm. But what? I trust in a God who, who is good, who, who is perfectly good, who has my good in mind. So even when there's suffering, even when there's all of the questions and, and everything and life seems uproarious and chaotic and i know that i can look back at the testimonies of others even the testimony of my own life the testimony of the scriptures and say no no, no. god is working all things 
all things together for good. And the resonating voice of Betsy Ten Boom, the night before she dies in a concentration camp, if you've never read The Hiding Place, you've got to read that book. Um, Jason, I know you talked about that. But Bessie says to her sister, and I'm going to get this not verbatim, but essentially, Corey, I had a vision. You're going to get out of here. You're going to, you're going to find this house on a hill, and you're going, to, you're going to use it to restore all these lives that have been broken from this war. Mm-hmm. And she says, but you're going, to get, you're going to tell them there is no pit so deep. God's love isn't deeper still. Mm-hmm. You tell them, Corey, because we've been here. We've been in the lowest trenches of human depravity, and even still, we found that God was faithful, and and heaven was rising in the midst of this this hellish environment, this godless environment, even still. And so, I, that's really dark and that's brooding, but but it gets to the heart of it because when you ask me about all the days of my life, my life is not my own. I didn't create myself. I didn't give life to myself. My parents didn't give life to me. God gave me. The breath that I have. God, give me the breath that fills my lungs that I used to speak right now. And, and, I, and in recognizing that, I'm able to lift my head with gratitude. Like those lepers who came and were healed and only was it one or two that came back and thanked Christ. I just, I just, I want to be grateful. I believe that Thanksgiving is the greatest sacrifice that we can give. Having a realization that my time is god's and it's precious and god has given as a gift and i want to make sure that as best i can and i fail all the time at this which is why i have to write these songs as a way of apologizing in a sense of reminding myself of what i continually forget and that is that this belongs to god Mm. but not that god's trying to you know yank it back from me and always beating me over the head saying come on you know thank me thank me today like i get upset at my son if if I make him his waffle in the morning, he forgets to thank me. I'm going, hello, you didn't thank me. And you know, and I'm wrong because I'm not doing it in service and in love. I just want to thank you. Well, God isn't like that. He's perfect. He's he's so much, he's infinitely more humble than than, than I am in that. Wow. And that and that drives me to want to thank him even more to say, Lord, you've given me a purpose. I'm here today. And so even if I can't discern that, even if it's gray clouds outside and a bunch of weeds in my backyard, and that's what life feels like. I know that there's something growing. You're doing a work in me that's that's rising, that's growing um, in my heart. And that one day I'll look back on, like Tolkien, I love how Tolkien poetically says it, well, in the end, God will make all the sad things untrue. Mm. That's something just to sit back and it's po- it's poetic, it's pithy, but it's true. And, and, and I think that we just, we, we do well to sit and just ponder the thought that all of this is leading to a great and glorious good that only our God, only our God and his infinite goodness could ever write. Um, and if that's true in a meta way, Jason, if that's true for the whole world and, and holding all things together, well, that's that's true for me as well. Um, yeah. What a beautiful picture of of God's authority. And, um, you know, that another song of yours, I'm Glorious Disgrace, you say, you're the author of all the good I've ever done. Yeah. yeah. And all I offer is borrowed breath from borrowed lungs. You're the author of the good I've ever done in all I offer. Broken songs from broken love. You still condescend to love me. You still condescend. What do you mean? why is that perspective so important? 
it's real important, Jason, because um, I'm going to contextualize this because of where we are in Western history. It's so important because of humanism and secular humanism and all the different isms that have been born out of enlightenment and late renaissance and where we are today in a postmodern world. I don't know what the terms are now, but just, and you know, the more than I do, Jason, you face this every day and many who are listening will as well. This, this constant narrative, this, this, your, even something as simple as, which is, is a half, there's a beautiful half truth. You're beautiful just the way you are and don't change anything about you. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. You know, we, we get to be the masters of our own destiny. We get to speak our own realities into existence. That's kind of Oprah's thing. I mean, just all of these rumblings, the rhetoric of, of the world today that on the surface just has this glistening effect. It's like, it's, it's a poisoned apple, if you will, because, because, and, and the farce of it, the, the tragedy of it, lastly, sorry, all that to say, is that we miss out on the greatest good. And, and, and this is why I brought up Augustine's quote where he says, you know, in Confessions, that we are made by God and our hearts are restless until we rest in him. Like pastors love to talk about, you know, the, the God-sized void in all of our hearts. I mean, however you want to look at that, it, it's just, it's the sense that it's, if I keep trying to make my life what I want it to be, I make myself the author of my life. I get to tell my own story. Mm. But if, 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 if God is the author of my life, or if he's, if we look at as an author, if he's the painter of this picture that is me, if he's, if you're an engineering person, not that, if, if he's the architect who, who wove everything together and, and just as all the planets are, you know, somehow suspended together in a perfect way, whether you call that gravitation or something else, he holds all things together by the word of his power. Whether you like to think of, of God's work in an engineering sense as he's the divine architect or a painter, you know, he's just, he's just, he splattered all this beautiful and all these forms and, or, or as a storyteller, or, you know, he's written a story. It, it makes sense what I'm saying, Jason. There's so many ways and analogies to understand what we are, but everyone points back to God mm. as the original and not just a God, a deistic God who, who was really kind of a genius in power and wound it all up and kind of let, let us be. But what makes God so great is that he is so good. His goodness is essential to his greatness. Mm. And I know it sounds kind of pithy, but if you think back on Eden, I think this is important because let's 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 think about the story of, of Eden just just really quickly. If you'll go there with me, mm. in a sense that I know that there's too much here. I mean, I'm I'm only scratching the surface that it's going to take me all of eternity to understand this. But what if you're looking at creation? Let's say Adam and Eve or something. It's even like Paul says in Romans 1. We can perceive certain qualities about God. If there's a God, I mean, look what he did. I mean, okay, Michelangelo can paint a Sistine Chapel, which is pretty cool, but it's, you know, it's stagnant. It doesn't move. It's big, but it's nothing like you walk out the front door of the Sistine Chapel and there's, you know, a skyscape that's changing every second. You do know what I'm saying, Jason? Yeah, yeah. It's like our greatest works of art are, you know, it's, it's, it's little muddy puddles on the side of a New York road, you know, compared to the, the infinite ocean of what God has done. It doesn't even compare. 
to even call it imitation is almost a <laughs> you know, is almost funny. So we, we already make too much of ourselves. That's what humanism does. It makes so much of what we can do. The technological revolution today is all about. I mean, Jason, have you heard certain atheists talk about or, or, or to use science in this way to say, how do you not believe in science when I can talk to someone in China right now, you know, through my cell phone? I'm, I'm talking to you right now, Jason, because of the technological revolution, which is in some ways, you know, applied sciences. And you've probably heard this kind of thing. And look, it's like, it's Babylon. Look what men can do. Look what we can accomplish. We're at an iPhone 12 now. And I can watch 10 movies at once on my phone. You know, just look at all the stuff that we can accomplish together. So all that to say, I know I'm going all over the place, but I just want to bring it up that we see the power of God in creation. And we see the authority of God all the way that things connect together. Mm. But we needed, we needed an incarnation of God. And not just an incarnation, but just that he became the lowest of the lows, like the mustard seed. He, was, he cast himself so low that he, mm. we, trampled, we trampled upon him, that he could empathize with all of our weaknesses, that he would have no form that we could admire, that he could actually say to each one of us, no matter what we've gone through, I've been there too. Mm. That, that eternal god the god of the highest philosophers and the highest theologians was the lowest of all from the perspective of of man that he came that low and so i say that because because god demonstrates his love for us not just in creation not not in eden per se but how he demonstrates his love for us in that while we had become enemies while we trampled on him while he was in front of our faces and every one of us tore him to shreds and didn't want anything to do with him. Even then he died for us and he loved us that much. And so we see that the heart of God is not just defined by creativity or this absolute power. Like many people, especially nihilists, think of God today, but absolute goodness. It's the goodness of God that needs to be the essential thing that I think of when I think about God. He's great but he's great because he's good. And, and, and you know what? <laughs> because I'm being poetic again, it just recalls to mind, I love that thought. I love that that's what Lewis brings out, I think, most in the Chronicles of Narnia, which I fell in love with as a child. Of course he isn't safe, you know, Mr. Beaver says, or Mrs. Beaver says, but he's good. Mm. It's just, again, something to ponder. And so I say all that to say, you asked me about the question of my own life and borrowed breath. It's one thing if I have this, kind of this this medieval type terror when fear of the lord means i'm just terrified constantly i've got to kind of literally whip myself into submission every time i gotta take the words literally i gotta cut my eye out every time it offends me mm. and it, it and you know what i'm saying and that's a tragedy that, that many have kind of taken that to the extreme and have done that to themselves and things like that okay um but i just wanted to say that um Kind of lost my train of thought. I thought, sorry, you might need to cut that out. That's kind of gruesome. But it's also a reality of church history, too. Um, of borrowed breath from borrowed lungs. The thought that the idea, the concept, the picture, if however it's allegorical or literal or whatever, in all the ways that it means, the thought that we receive crowns from the king, that we receive robes, that we share in the glory jason and the righteousness of christ one day that he places a crown on my head mm. and the one song i wrote i think was totally raw i see where i just 
the thought for me is I just w- want to throw the crown down because I know that I'm so unworthy of the crown. Mm. Because Jesus is the one who won it for me. He did the thing I could never do. And yet, this is the goodness of God that I believe it conceptually. I mean, I can't prove this. and I, I, I don't build a, you know, a theology around this per se on what I'm going to say. But the fact that he gives us the crowns. The fact that he gives us a part to play in this story. The fact that he could have just written it all himself. But mm. he uses our little hands to transcribe and our little hands to, to translate the scriptures and, and our little voices to share it door to door and my little voice to write a song and, and to work out poetry and trying to find the right words. And my words are never going to be enough. Mm. And Jason, he was sermons. You know what I'm talking about? Like God could do it all himself. But he's so kind and he's so loving. He's so condescendingly good towards us that he gives us a part to play. And then at the end, pats us on the back as if we've actually had, you know, some massive role. Like we're we're Frodo or something as if, you know, we're the great hero of all simply because we're obedient. And and all we want to do is throw it back because we don't deserve it. But God doesn't receive and go, yeah, okay. It's not just a sleight of hand. It's not just, you know, the whole typical what's it called? You know, false humility. Mm. God wants, God is so good that he creates us and he creates us with a purpose. And when we walk with him, when we are in him, then we find our purpose. I started with secular humanism and all that, this notion that we think we can just build ourselves up. But what we do is we cut out the foundation. We cut out the possibility of of goodness in our lives of true goodness we, we kind of possibility of that telos that that greek idea of of this is this is going somewhere it's leading to a final point mm. and we lose it and we don't we don't we don't just lose the end of the story we don't just lose the happy ever after that's what i'm trying to live in jason every day i live the presence of i, I, I lose the presence of goodness of, of of a relationship with god now in my life for this mm. present life um, if I leave him aside and try to make of my life whatever I will and act as if the things I do, I can pat myself on the back. We talked about that earlier, right? Jason, in your own humility, you know, as if I've done something so novel and, and that's never been done before and, and I deserve all the credit that I get for it. And I just, I write songs like that because I want to fight that vanity and the pride that so wells up in me um, as a son of man myself. Um, and that's a way that I fight against that impulse to take way too much credit that I deserve is just to look up. And once like, like there's times real quick when I was painting pictures for, for a book, I was, I was, all of a sudden I loved how I mixed the colors of the skyscape and it, it looked really cool. And there's nothing wrong with it. It was really cool. And I felt the pleasure of the Lord in it because I got over my fear of painting and yes, it was all great. And I'll never forget walking outside. It was like, I finally found these acrylic brushes and some watercolor brushes and I could, I could tell the difference between the two different textures. I never could before and all the collaborations I'd done. And now I could tell because I did it. And I walked outside, Jason, I looked up and man, it's, it's literally like the sky was just every cloud looked like a different form of an acrylic brush and a watercolor brush. And it just was infinite in front of me. And I smile and I laugh because not because I felt vain for thinking that my art was so good. Cause I still, it's like, I just laugh and I'm like, look at, look at, all that I've been missing. Look at what you did, God, and how incredible it is. And yet, that you would actually let me take a little paintbrush and paint my own version of that. And you could actually 
be pleased in my own little work somehow, even though you did all that. Like, like that's that's where I can laugh. That's where 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 the goodness of God takes center stage because it isn't this kind of woe is me. I can't do anything right. It's it's not even my breath. It's not even my works. I can't take credit for it. You know, don't thank me. It's it's not some miser, you know, living in a a shanty that won't take any kind of that thinks God just wants to constantly beat beat me over the head and just take the glory for himself, so to speak. Mm. It's the reality that the glory of God is in the is bending down to wash his disciples' feet. That the glory of the king is that he's the one who becomes last and servant to all. The glory of God is in his goodness and his humility towards us, that he takes delight in the little works that we do, which are so insignificant. Seth, I, I really appreciate this. So how can uh, listeners find out more about um, your your art, your books, and um, how can they get some of your music? Yeah, um, so the website they can go to to see the, the different fables and the, and, and the different books. Um, I would encourage you to, to, to check it out. Even if you don't want to get any books, just look at some of the art, because I was able to collaborate with some incredible painters in Ukraine. I did a, um, the cheesy book I mentioned, and I'm sorry this sounds like a commercial. I, I don't like to do this, but but okay, but you asked for it, Jason. You, you put me on the spot. Um, but yeah, a cheesy book, which again is, is a complete waste of time if you don't like cheese or, or laughter. Or it's cheesy jokes and it's dad jokes. So if you don't like dads, you know, <laughs> then, then you won't like this book. Um, but uh, I did a color collaboration because before I started painting, I did kind of have this this inferiority complex with painting. I just, I, I love good art and I can't really do good, great art. So then therefore I'm not going to do it at all. If it can't be great, whatever. Um, but uh, I did a color, but I love to sketch. I love to sketch and, and, and then to outline in black ink and do kind of some comic style ink work. And so I had all these different sketches, but once I tried to paint them, I just, I couldn't stand it. You know what that's like, Jason. I just, I just didn't, I just didn't want to look at it. So I found this guy in, in Egypt. He's a great painter. And, and I had this just kind of this harebrained idea for a color collaboration, a color collab, I call it, where kind of to facilitate artistic collaborations. I said, hey, what do you think of interpreting my sketches with color? Like you, you put your own painting style on them and so we can kind of collaborate together. He loved the idea. And that's what a cheesy book was. And it's funny because if, if any of you do decide to get that book or even just look at it, there's a page. I think I was maybe 31. It was right after Atlas that I wrote this, after I left Atlas. There's this whole page at the beginning about how I've tried to paint and I can't paint. You know, everything comes out black and white. So, you know, I've given up. It's like then I turned 33 and then I actually painted. The next book was The Life of Christ, which isn't a great painting, but it completely undermines everything I just wrote, you know, a year before. I'm not going to paint anymore. Now I'm painting. Um, so yeah, it's called um, fictionforestbooks.com. So fictionforestbooks.com. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Seth, I thank you so much. I am definitely going to be praying for you and for your family and, um, and for your future in ministry. So thank you so much for coming on Master Scrib. Jason, thanks so much for having me. And to all those who are listening, thank you so much for bearing with me. And uh, it's been great to meet you from afar. 